We're going to talk in Matthew chapter 5 tonight about food and illumination. Light food. We're going to listen. I found this today. This is interesting to me, and this comes. Um, this is pretty up to date. A daily infographic that came last July, but it's a list of the world's most expensive meals. All right. So you have, for instance, in the in a restaurant in Tokyo that I cannot nor will try to pronounce, but it looks like Fiji make Geki Joe. You can get a bowl of ramen noodles. How many of you ever eaten ramen noodles? It's right in college. They are called lunch and dinner. $110. In Sacramento, California, at the ultra, at the Capital Dog, you can get the Ultra Dog, a hot dog, for only $145.99. In Scotland, that's one Cliff's going to like right here, you can get an end-of-history beer. Belgian beer packaged inside a taxidermied squirrel carcass. Only set you back between, depending on what day of the week it is, $800 to $1,100. In the Westin Hotel in New York City, you can get a white truffle bagel that costs you $1,000. Or for $1,000, New York City also boasts the Golden Opulent Sunday, which includes Rare cocoa beans harvested off the coast of Venezuela. $2,000 a slice or $16,000 a pie. You can enjoy Britain's Wagyu meat pie and its savory combination of six pounds of Kobe beef and Matsusaki mushrooms. All of those mushrooms sell for $910 a pound. And in Italy, Chef Viola's Louis Thirteenth pizza loaded with lobster, Caviar, eight different types of cheeses, and seasoned with hand-picked pink Australian river salt only will set you back $12,000. I think that includes the first bypass. Any additional bypasses are more money. All right? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? It is crazy. Yeah, there's no sounds to it. It is. What's that? It's obscene. Well, because it's good. It's, they're, they're chefs. They know what to give you. Here's the thing. I find it interesting that in our day, Jesus calls us the most common food additive around. All right? We just got through the Beatitudes, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. But then he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, I think we all know what that means. We're going to delve a little bit into it in just a minute. But sometimes as Christians, I think we lose sight of our ability to be salt and our ability to be light. We kind of look at the world around us and we think, well, it is just headed off a cliff. There is nothing we can do about it. It is on a fast track to nowhere. And yet we forget that we're as much to blame or more to blame for that to happen than the society in general. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but we also forget the impact that Jesus has already had and can have through us. In fact, um, this guy named Kenneth Latourette, in a seven-volume work, I didn't read all seven volumes, I read one paragraph. On the history of the expansion of Christianity, he said, 
No life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men than Jesus Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration, right? I mean, killed in his early 30s, seemingly over with his movement before the resurrection, has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphant waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. By it, millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse known to man. It's emancipated millions from shadow slavery and millions of others from addiction to vice. It has protected tens of millions in exploitation from their fellows. It's been the most fruitful source of movement to lessen the horrors of war and put the relations of men and the nations on the basis of justice and peace. Jesus, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, is predicting what has come to pass. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You know these verses. I've already almost said them all, but we're just going to read them again. This is right after the Beatitudes, right after the blessed are you, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are they. He says, you, that's emphatic, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and to be trampled on by men. Why did Jesus choose salt? I mean, there is very little as common in our day as salt. Right? It makes a big difference. Yeah. Preservative. What if I told you that in Jesus' day, pure salt was in some places more valuable than gold? It was not common table salt like we think. Now, they had salt, but a lot of times it had impurities and other things in it, so it wasn't as good. Pure salt was highly valuable. In fact, you may not know this, but the word salary comes from a derivative of salt, and it means salt money. In fact, we we understand a little bit because we'll talk about that man is worth his salt. Now, we don't mean a... When we say that, we mean something good, right? It's not something little. And so in Jesus' day, salt would have been very prized. Now, for several reasons. One, you've already mentioned, because it's seasons, right? People use salt to bring out the flavors that are inherent in something, but that may be masked or not really evident. It's pretty obvious when you take a bite of something that doesn't have any salt on it. Right? Some time, somebody got me unsalted fries. This is not good. I mean, I might as well take my shoelaces off and start chewing on them, right? I mean, I, I like salt. Now, salt, too much salt is not always good, so we have salt substitutes and all kinds of stuff, but salt brings out flavor. And I think that that's part of what Jesus is implying here is that we are to bring out the flavor in life, that we are to be, um, I, I like to think of, uh, I used to watch some Food Network, and Emerald used to do the bam, you know, kick it up a notch, right? That we're to kind of be the bam when it comes to life. That people see us, they're to see excitement, joy. They're to see us living life like nobody else is living. That we ought to have excitement in our life. The truth is, without Christ in their life, people are living a bland, 
flavorless life. And that's why they're looking for something, anything, that can give them an emotional, a spiritual, a physical high. That's why they pursue after pleasure so much. That's why they are seeking after money or fame or fortune so much is because they have to have something that excites them. That's why 80,000 of them will pay hundreds of dollars to go sit in a stand and watch 22 guys hit each other. They're wanting some sort of excitement. That's why millions will turn into a basketball game played because they need some sort of excitement, something that brings them life or vitality. The problem is, oftentimes, when people are trying to find that satisfaction, it is the bland leading the bland. Instead of the blind leading the blind. No excitement, no thrill, tasteless. And Jesus says that we are the band in life. Which is why it's sad when people are asked to describe Christians One of the first three words off their lips is boring. We have no excuse to be boring. Now, sometimes what has happened is in churches, we have so regulated what we think we can do that we have regulated the life and the vitality out of following Jesus. I dare you to read the New Testament and tell me that any of those disciples lived boring lives following Jesus. It just didn't happen. And so if it's a boring life we're living, then there's something that's missing. We're not being the bam, the wow factor that we're supposed to be in this world. Salt seasons. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. There should be something about us that is absolutely exciting and enticing. Um. I remember a few years ago, I was, this time I was still pastoring at Ripley, and I actually um, had somebody in to preach for me. And I didn't know this, but a local church was looking at the person I had to in to preach to possibly be their pastor. And so they came to listen. Um, and I knew a couple of people on there. My parents knew a couple of people on the search committee. And so they were talking to my mom afterwards, and they said, you know what we discovered about Lyle? Is that he just smiles all the time. He's just like he's happy. I'm like, well, what do you expect, you know? And now I guess there have been enough preachers that have been mad at the world that they're not happy. But when you have Jesus in your life, it's hard not to be excited and happy with life. What else does salt do? You, I think you said it preserves, Miss Joan, right? Especially in Jesus' day, you couldn't go take a side of beef and throw it in the fridge or the freezer, right? Because they didn't have fridge or freezer. So how did you preserve meat? You you salted it. You know what's interesting is, uh, this is kind of a just a interesting little tidbit, and you can test it out and probably find an exception. But I remember in high school, my geography teacher said, the closer you get to the equator, the spicier the food becomes. And he said, the reason for that is because the farther you get away from the equator, the longer the winter, and if you had a side of beef, you go store it out in the snow or the ice. If you're near the equator, you've got to spice it up to keep it stored, right? We go to Brazil. Brazil, I mean, they're, they're not a third world country, but they're a developing country. And they, they have lots of these little areas that we'll go into, especially to minister to people, that you can tell they don't have refrigerators around, and they've just got meat hung out. 
You know what's interesting is in Brazil, even in places that have refrigerators, they, their food is very salty, garlicky. Kathy can attest to that. It, there's, it's, it's not, there's not bland food down there except for maybe the rice, but the meat is not bland. The reason is because they want to preserve. All right, so what is it preserving the meat from? What happens without salt? Spoil, decay, rotting. We've all probably experienced at some point in our life having a piece of meat stuck in the refrigerator or outside inadvertently and it rots. It's not, not pleasant, is it? How do you first tell that something's rotting? You smell it, right? There's this natural decay. In fact, there is this sense in our world and in our lives and in God's creation when the natural course is towards destruction and decay. doesn't take long in the Bible to see that, right? Adam and Eve sin. What happens? What's the next generation? Adam and Eve, who's the next generation? Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain and Abel? Murder, right? My Genesis chapter 6, what's going on? The world is so wicked that God has to do away with it. And they come out, and Noah starts down a path almost immediately that's not good. Before long, God's coming up with another rescue plan because the natural order of things is towards destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah, the kingdoms of the north and the south, Decay and destruction. There is a scientific term. I think I'll get this right. If not, y'all can tell me later. It's called entropy. And I think entropy is the natural inclination of all things to move towards chaos and disorganization rather than organization. The idea is things break down. They don't come together. Which, by the way, it's interesting that that is a scientific kind of law, and yet for some reason they think everything here just kind of jumped up and came together as a world and human being goes against entropy completely. But that's the natural order. It's the natural order for meat unless salt intervenes. And here's the thing. It is the natural order of society to decay and erode and to be farther away from the Lord. And it is only when the preserving impact of people who are followers of Jesus intercept that decay that the decay is thwarted or slowed or stopped. So if decay is happening, it is more our responsibility than theirs. Does that make sense? We're the ones that are supposed to be the salt. Stopping the decay. And so if decay is happening, it's not the decay. It's not the meat's fault it decays. It's meat. That's what it does. It's not the lost fault that they're becoming lost. That's who they are. That's what they do. It's our fault for not being the preserving factor in society. Jesus says, you, you, you. It's almost like he's pointing verbally. You. I was growing up, we had a revival preacher. I remember that. I don't remember what. I don't remember anything else about this sermon except all, for a good three or four minutes. He pointed, I think, at everybody in that. But you, 
and you. You know how sometimes you think, preacher, you were staring right at me. He was pointing right at us. You. It's only like Jesus is verbally pointing, saying, you are the salt of the earth. What does the salt do? Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's a, there is a medicinal factor to salt. There's an irritating factor. So you ever cut your finger or your hand? Sweat in your eyes? Ever get a paper cut and then you get some salt on it? Or Man, it's irritating, right? Anybody ever gargle with salt water to help, right? So there's some kind of factors there. It's a versatile thing. And here's the thing that I think is interesting. It's used in a lot of ways in a lot of places for a lot of results. And we are the salt of the earth. And then he says, but what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Here's the interesting thing. Salt, what are the two chemicals that make up salt? Sodium and chloride. Do you know those two by themselves are both poisonous? And yet you bring them together and they're medicinal, flavoring, preserving. It's kind of crazy how God designed all that. Heard about a boy one time, went to his mom and said, Mom, would you give me a dollar if I was good today? And she said, why don't you just be like your dad and be good for nothing? Right. Jesus said the salt that loses saltiness is what? Good for nothing. It's not good for anything except to be trampled, right? Now, people will argue, well, salt cannot lose its saltiness. It, technically, sodium chloride cannot lose saltiness. It is always that property. But in their day, they weren't probably getting pure salt. They weren't going down to the grocery store getting the whole thing of salt. They were just getting it however they could get it from vendors or whatever, and it was often mixed. And some of the salt may have been lost, and so you had just other minerals remaining, and so it doesn't do any good. The point isn't whether or not salt itself can lose its saltiness, right? Jesus isn't trying to make a scientific discussion of sodium chloride and its physical properties. What he's saying is, if you don't do it, guess what? It's not going to get done. And you're good for nothing except to be trampled on and throw out. And then he says in verse 14, two of the most common things he can use, right? Salt and light. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You know, what's interesting about this is if you go over the book of John, Jesus and John give several I am statements, right? I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was... I am. He also says, I am the light of the world. And what happened is, most when you read the context of what's going on there, it's interesting how Jesus announces that. It's on the day following one of the biggest celebrations that the Jewish people would have. And the celebration was known as the illumination of the temple. It took place in the temple treasury 
they would build four massive golden candelabras. Now, to give you an idea how tall these candelabras were, they would have been taller than any part of the temple and taller than any of the walls of Jerusalem. They would have been the tallest structure in Jerusalem. And on top of that, they had huge torches. Each torch, bowl, or basin could hold 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder to each candelabrum, and the fit, they make a point of saying the fit priest would carry those oil containers up to the top. And when the evening came, they would get up there, they would light the wicks that were protruding out that would go down into the oil, and eyewitnesses says huge flames would leap from the torches and would illuminate not only the temple, but all of Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem would have seen it. And then it says in the Mishnah, which is kind of the Jewish kind of a rule book or a description or a commentary on what happened, it said men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and instruments of music. Now, get the scene. Four huge candelabras riding all of Jerusalem. God's dancing and singing and jumping around with torches in their hand and cymbals playing. Can you imagine that worship on Sunday morning right here? Can you imagine if I came out with a torch blazing, dancing, with somebody playing the drums as loudly as they could at 8.30 Sunday morning? That's what was going on here. That's right. Hopefully I'd have more clothes on than David had at that time. So you get this whole thing. It celebrated. Anybody know what it celebrated? Why they did the big fire and light all that? Because it celebrated the fire that God sent to guide the Israelites on their journey out of Egypt. Most scholars think that on the day after that celebration, with the smoke still flowing, Jesus steps up at the temple in front of those candelabras and says, I am the light of the world. Last night you celebrated the light that God sent before the Israelites to lead them. I am the light of the world. It's time to follow me, and I'll take you where you need to go. So when he says to us that we are the light of the world, he means it's our job to illuminate the darkness and guide them in the way they should go. Here's the spiritual facts. The world is dark. Spiritually, morally, it's dark. Now the good news is, it's always been dark. You ever turn the light off at night, getting ready to go to bed, and everything's settled, and you turn the light off, and you think, man, it's dark in here. You ever have that happen? And you wake up about 2 o'clock in the morning. And you think it's, it's, you kind of look up, and you think it's not as dark as it was. Because you can see, right? Your eyes have adjusted. You know the reality, don't you? It's the same. There are a lot of people in the darkness of our world that think it's not quite as dark just because they've got used to the darkness. You know what lets you know real quickly how dark it is? When you turn on the light. Last night, um, 
we were getting ready for bed and it was warm in our house because we had not we tried not to turn the air conditioner on we turned it up real high where it would you know wouldn't get too hot but it, at bedtime you know it was warm and so I said we need to turn that fan on over the bed we hadn't had it on in a while we need to turn it on the problem is who's not could neither would remember which switch was the fan and which one was the light and the light is really bright. And so it's one of those things where you flick it on real quick to see if that's it, you know. And I flicked on one and nothing happened. And I said, well, the, either the fan's off or the light's off. Let me draw the other one. I flicked the other one and bright light about blinded. You turned it off and there were these glowing embers almost still of the light. We have, we have those, you know, the new required lights that kind of glow for just a second after. And I couldn't help but think about how bright that light seemed. And yet, how just 10 minutes earlier we had had it on anyway. We are to be the light that illuminates the darkness. You ever try to walk in the dark? Not a good idea. Especially in my house. Because you don't know where the Barbies are left or the Legos are left. I saw something on Facebook the other day. It said, on a, how much did it hurt on a scale of one to I just stepped on a Lego? Anybody here ever stepped on a Lego? It is the most painful thing. Can I get a witness over there? Especially if those little circle things are up and they get right. The other night, I was having to go out to get something in the garage, and I thought I'd try to do it without ever waking everybody up, so I was going to do it in the dark. And my boys had decided that the stick horse would be a good place to put it, would be right by where you step out the back door into the garage. I had to use every remaining bit of athleticism I have not to just go face first in the garage. You ever walk along in the darkness and you can't find it? You finally find the light switch and you turn it on and it's amazing what you were scared of or what you almost stepped on or how much easier it is now. Jesus says you don't take a city and build it up on a hill to hide it away. In fact, he says you can't do it. It's there. I did a funeral yesterday in in Carthage for Miss Lena McKitta who joined our church about... um, almost five years ago now. Miss Lena, uh, her whole family's from Carthage, and I, I had never driven the back roads of Gallatin to Carthage. And Alan told me that that's the way to go because he had family up there, which I hadn't even had a chance to talk to you, Alan. But going out of the graveyard, I stepped on or over about 10 Circe. What's that? Dixon Springs Funeral Cemetery up there. And right in the horizon of Dixon Springs Cemetery is what I assume is a nuclear reactor. Right? You see that thing for miles. It, it's just so out of the ordinary. You're driving along in the backwoods of Tennessee, and there is a nuclear reactor. I thought about that today when I read the city on a hill thing. Because... That's almost like it. You can't hide that thing if you wanted to hide it. It's there. Jesus says, why would you want to hide or distract from being the light of the world? You have the illumination that is needed for this darkened place. Then he says, you wouldn't take a lamp, light the lamp, and then cover it up. You use it for people to see. This darkened world is in desperate need of light. And the easy thing is to take our light, go hunker in the corner, and keep it all to ourselves. The difficult task is in a loving, compassionate, graceful way to tell the truth about who Jesus is and to take it to people that are in desperate need. 
But that's what we're called to do. He says, in fact, so let your light shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You got your Bibles open. Turn to Matthew 6.1. I think this is interesting. Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people. Wait a minute. Matthew 5 said, So let your light shine in front of men. Matthew 6.1 says, Don't do your acts of righteousness in front of people. So which is it? What's that, Jack? Not to do it to be seen. So, there are some people that say that the ends justify the means. What Jesus says, because there's some people say, see, he's contradicting. He's not contradicting himself. In one, he says, don't do your acts in front of men to be seen by them, because if you do, you will have your reward. And the other says, so let your light shine in front of men that they see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. And I think that goes back to the motivation inside of you. What's your motivation? Is it to do good acts so people say, Whoa, he is a good preacher. Oh, I like him. He's a good pastor. She's a good lady, great worker, good friend, good neighbor. They say they're a Christian. I think they're great people. Or is it that people will say, Man, God worked through you today. Praise be to God. And I can tell you have something different. You must be a follower of Jesus. Praise be to God. I've been doing lots of premarital counseling. I've told you all that. So there's a wedding this weekend, a church wedding. Ryan Coatney and Emily Chambers getting married. And I'm going to the wedding, not in the wedding, not doing the wedding. It's rare these days I go to a wedding I'm not in or I'm not doing. And I'm glad I'm not in it or doing it. I'm just going to enjoy. I thought about our wedding. Susan and I will be married 15 years this summer. Some of you, that seems like, well, that's like it's two days. That's not very long. For us, we, we 15 years seems like a long time. I mean, we look back, how where did all the time go? I remember our wedding very well. I mean, um, I remember the sweaty palms and the nervousness that I had. I remember walking out there. I remember having... You know, my best friends in the world flanking me and Susan's best friends flanking her. And by that time, her best friends become good friends of mine and my best friends become good friends of hers. We, Her dad and her brother did the wedding and made sure that I said my vows correctly. We had three people sing in our wedding that are absolutely great vocalists, traveling evangelists, one that traveled the country in a singing group, and another that's a vocal uh, teacher. I mean, it was just great music, beautiful music. Susan and I picked out some stuff that was traditional, non-traditional. We, I loved our wedding. I remember the, the uh, reception. Our wedding was a little bit unique because um, I, we were close enough to Dyersburg. A lot of people from Dyersburg came. But Susan's dad had been pastoring that church for almost 20 years, so there were lots of people there. Susan had grown up since first grade in that church, so people knew her. They, it was, they had just opened a new sanctuary. It was this really, you know, Lots of people, lot, long receiving line. And as people are going through, they're talking, oh, the dress was beautiful, the flowers were beautiful, oh, the singing was great. I just thought that what your, her brother, uh, David, wrote a poem for the occasion that nobody in the place had a dry eye when it was done. Um, I was just scared to death in the midst of it because he was he, at the end of it he says, 
something directly to me, and it was very forceful when he said it. And David's a big man. Um, but people were talking about, oh, when your brother did that, I just, all these things. I remember Dr. David Dockery, who's president of Union University, had been there a couple of years, still there as president, came up to us. And he shook my hand, and he kind of leaned over to say something. You know, most times at a wedding reception, it's the handshake back, unless it's a close friend and they hug. He wasn't hugging, and he was just leaning in. And he said something that I will never forget. Because Susan and I had talked about this beforehand. He said, Lyle, that was the most God-glorifying wedding I have ever been to. Now, I didn't have a whole lot to do with that because basically my job was to stand there, say I do, and repeat the words they told me to repeat. But I remember that. I, I don't remember many other comments that day, but I remember that one. And I remember thinking after that, my goal is that at 15, 30, 45 years of marriage, we would say that our marriage had been glorifying to God. I thought about it as I was staying next to the casket of Miss Lena yesterday, and I talked about her. At the end of my life, I, I don't necessarily care if people say, well, he was a good person, or he's a good preacher, or I liked him, or he was a good pastor, or he really helped our church, or he was a good husband, he was a good dad. I, that'd be nice. What I hope people say is, my prayer is that I would live a life this way is he glorified God with all that he was. Let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and they'll give glory to God, your Father. My life verse is Isaiah 26, 8. I love it. It says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your word, we wait for you because your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. There are levels of following Jesus. And it talks about in 1 Corinthians, there's the level that will get in, but as if through fire and all their work is burned up. Okay. There's the level of moving past the selfishness that comes just in receiving what God has done and beginning to serve. But the highest level I think you obtain is when you say, your name, your renown, is all that I care about. The glory of the Lord is all that matters. It's not easy to live a life. It's easy to say you're going to live a life that way. It's not easy to live a life that way. And yet Jesus says, if you don't do it, you're the salt. If you don't do it, you're the light. If you don't live your life in such a way that they see your works and give glory to your Father in heaven then they're not going to give glory to your Father in heaven. They're not going to come to a realization of the need for Him in their life. Now, eventually they will, right? I mean, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. But live your life so that His renown is declared. Let's pray.